0: 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. After this, we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and then we'll come back to 1 Corinthians. Just be aware. Be on your feet a little bit here. This is the word of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. We just sang about that, didn't we? We just gave glory to God for that truth. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of god first corinthians chapter 1 verse 5 the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying, or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 4 through 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I have a a bit of introduction to this sermon today. The first bit is, is that if you want more information on this topic, there's One book especially that I would suggest that you order and read, and I would say that every family could read this, or every adult family for sure could read this. Um, Kevin DeYoung's book, What the Bible Really Teaches on Homosexuality, is very good. It's not uh, overly technical. It's very readable, and it's very good. It's very uh, biblically... Uh, align. This one is much more technical, Robert Gagnon, The Bible and Homosexual Practice. It's very technical. It's very uh, historically um, uh, acute and also uh, Greek, Hebrew. It's very technical if you want more detail into uh, the matter that I will be preaching on this morning. This matter that I'm preaching on this morning, I can't begin to touch on all the areas that we are uh, We are dealing with this matter in our culture, in our homes, in our workplace, uh, in those we love, and maybe even our own selves. Maybe even you, yourself, are tempted in these things. Um, I'm going to talk about biblical sexuality again, and the sexual sin uh, this morning is what I'm calling an unnatural sexual sin. And you'll see why I call it that. Particularly, it's homosexuality. This is the last sermon that I'll preach in this series before I go away on on sabbatical. I'm not running away because I'm preaching on this topic. I want you to know. Um, Although, you might be tempted these days. If you're going to speak the truth on this topic, you might be tempted to run away afterwards. But I don't think we should. I think that if the motive that we speak about these things is love, it's the love of God, It's the righteousness of God. It's the justice of God. It's the truth of God. If that's the motive that we speak about these things, we should not be ashamed. If it's just that you have something personal against this issue, you should probably keep your mouth shut. But if it's in accordance with the word of God, speak and stand. And pray. Pray. Because as I said weeks ago with this matter of biblical sexuality, we are not in this just to save our our culture. We are in this to save souls. We are we are in this to get sinners who are opposed to their created their creator and the creation the creation purpose that God has for them who made them in his image to worship him and obey him and love him and have joy that is eternal and full. And sin is always in opposition to that in every form. And today, this sin of homosexuality is, I would say, that central sin that is the pervasive whipping rod or beating stick or conform to this morality. The world will say, or you do not belong. In other words, accept us. Or you do not belong. Very quickly, this may turn into you need to be outcast. You can't have this job. Very quickly, it might go further than that into jail and into fines. It already is that. If you take the sister sins of this sin, transgenderism, pansexuality and all of those things which I'm not going to have time to get into. They all are sister sins of this particular sin. And you'll notice already I'm calling it sin. That's not a very popular thing to do. But the scriptures bear this out very clearly. As a way of speaking to parents this morning... I'm going to speak regarding this issue faithfully to the word of God. And if I get into areas where you are not happy with regards to your children and you want to take them out, I leave that to your conscience. I am not going to speak about anatomy. It's not my intention to to delve into the depths of the depravity of what happens in the details of this sin. It is exceedingly gross, some of it, and all of it is perverse in regards to nature. But I will describe the lies, and I will describe as far as scripture describes the accents of this sin, if I could say it that way. Now, you'll notice that I called this an unnatural sin, and I told you last week that even though I called natural sins, sins, sexual sins, which happen among male and female. And I say natural sins because God has created us, male and female, to relate to each other sexually within the boundaries, within the bonds of marriage. That's a good thing. And so there's a sense where that's natural, it's good, it's within God's created purpose for man and woman. And that's why I call it a natural sin. But there is a sense where all sins Are unnatural. So when I say natural and unnatural, understand what I'm meaning. I'm talking about created purpose. When I talk about unnatural sexual sins, I am saying there is no provision from God in creation, in His created purpose, for these sexual unions to take place. And it's not even myself primarily that comes to you today and defines this as an unnatural sexual sin, the sin of homosexuality or the sin of LGBTQ+. That's what we're doing. We're putting plus on this category now because there really are no breaks to it. But this is our point And this is the concern of my sermon today, is to teach you what the scriptures say about this sin, and that it is a sin. First of all, homosexuality is a symptom of a bigger problem. It's a symptom of a bigger problem, and I've been saying that already in regards to all of these other sins, and it's very true about homosexuality as well. In Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read this text. I'm not going to exposit Romans 1, 18 through 24. I've already done that. If you want to go back what I read, read or listen to what I had to say on this in my series of Romans, you can go back and listen on our website. I do want to read this for you, though. Romans 1, 18 through 24. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What is happening here is Paul is describing the Gentile in their sin. In the history of mankind, Paul is going back and he's saying this is what the Gentiles knew about God. They knew certain things about God and in light of that, they were unthankful. They didn't honor him as God. They turned from God and they started worshiping the created things, the created order. They even started making things with their own hands. And in doing so, Paul says, there is a consequence to that wrong worship, to the disorder of worship. There is a consequence. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God is giving them up now to things, practices, even a mindset which is shameful, which is distorting to humanity as God created them to live. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And now he begins this list of sins, what's called the vice list oftentimes. And he begins this list with sort of a paradigm sin. That sort of defines this giving up to this disordered or this shameful activity. And the first sin he uses... I believe, is not the only sin that comes as a result of this sort of disorder in worship, but it is a sexual disorder. And remember, I've already argued that God made us sexual. It's not a a distant component to humanity. It's not something that we can pick and choose for ourselves. This is in accordance with who God created us to be, how God created us to live. And so this disordering is a part, it contradicts God's purpose in creation. We have rejected the creator, we have served the creature, now he's giving us over to something which is absolutely contradicting to his created purpose. And I believe this is sort of a paradigm sin that he describes here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. The rejection of God results in God giving them up three times. It says he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up. Specifically, Paul uses one sin in particular, this sin, to begin this vice list, and that is the sin of homosexuality. But he doesn't begin with the act. He begins with something else that is even denied by many, even by this man, who... I have much respect for much of what he says. But then he goes along and then he'll say, it is not the desire which is sinful. It's the act of homosexuality which is sinful. The first thing we see here is that there are sinful passions in the first place with regards to homosexuality. It's not just the act. It's popular even by some conservative Bible teachers to say that while homosexual activity is clearly sin, the orientation of homosexuality, which orientation is not a term that I would be comfortable using as a scientific, because what is meant by it is the immutable characteristic of If you, some say sexual orientation, they mean as if it was like your skin color. This is the way that you are by nature sexually orientated. And I don't agree with that. And I believe that's not biblical and I don't believe science bears that out. I was going to go into all the scientific studies that have been done trying to find the gay gene. Do you remember the song Born This Way? I hope maybe you don't. I looked up the lyrics. It was based on the idea that we're born this way. Of course we should do this. Right? Which I'll get into that a little bit more. There is no gay gene. There is no no scientific evidence in the brain, in any aspect of our physicality that teaches us that we are made to sin in these ways. There's no basis for that. There is no psychological clarity as to why that happens. I don't like to use the term orientation. The sin doesn't start with the act. The sin starts with the desire. According to this text, Romans 1, and 27 says, for this reason, God gave them up to what? Dishonorable. The word can be translated degrading. What? Passions. And then in verse 27, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with what? Passion. Well, passion is not intrinsically evil. But what is in the context very clear is this passion contradicts God's created purpose for men and women. And it leads to the activity, which is surely worse, it's certainly more sinful But that does not make it non-sinful to have these passions. Paul is illustrating in these phrases what Jesus clearly taught. That sins of the body proceed from internal desires. Jesus said in Mark 7.21, From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. Listen, and they defile a person. Now, this means that all sorts of sexual sins begin inwardly. And we know that. Jesus said if you have lustful thoughts in your heart towards a woman, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. Lustful means you're out of context with God's prescribed order for righteousness. Now, if you find your wife attractive and you're thinking about her in that way, good. Praise the Lord you're doing that. But that's within the boundaries of God's created purpose for you. Outside of that, no matter what it is, that desire has to be held in check. By heterosexuals, and certainly if for heterosexuals, then homosexuals. And by homosexuals, I mean those people that are tempted by attraction to their own sex. If I am sinning against my neighbor's wife, by imagining her and contriving in her and giving myself over to the lust of my heart to imagine myself with her. It is equally sinful, if not more so, to do that in an unnatural sense towards someone who you have no God-given right whatsoever to do that. And it's true that neither I nor the homosexual who's tempted have that right But there is no provision from God for either those desires in his word. And so the the desires themselves, we must understand, are not in accordance with God's created purpose and not in accordance with righteousness. Because sin proceeds from those desires. Now the objection comes, and I want to face some objections today. One of the objections comes, very close to us, which is, I don't want these desires. I didn't ask for them. You hear homosexual people tell you that? I've heard that many times. I didn't ask for these. You know, this. I grew up in a conservative home. I didn't want to have these temptations. Why would that benefit me at all? This must then, therefore... Be natural, they would say. And oftentimes this defense is given by people who have even suffered abuse in some ways. Now, when we hear such an argument, we should not respond necessarily in our hearts, oh, you're just trying to find an excuse for your sin. That may, you know... These people struggle with this differently. Everybody, we want to talk about communities. Communities are such a sloppy way to define individuals. It's not a helpful way often. There are people that struggle with this in very different ways. So we need to have wisdom. But the very fact that somebody struggles with this and might even admit, I have not wanted this, is no defense at all for it being righteous. Brothers and sisters, every temptation to sin should be abhor- abhorrent to everyone. You're tempted to w- lie to your spouse? That should be an abhorrent idea. Lie on the books for your, your, uh, your business? That should be abhorrent. Anything we're tempted of, sinfully speaking, we should not validate merely because we have those desires. And by the way, oftentimes we are tempted of things that we don't want to be tempted of. What does Paul say in Romans 7? Covetousness, when does that come? It becomes because the law tells him not to covet. And now he's like, ah, I realize I do this. And I die because I don't want to do this. And then he cries out, what hope do I have? That the things that I don't want to do, I still do. He's saying there's a tension, even with believers we have to recognize this. This is why we are called to die to ourselves daily. We we don't have the right to say because we have the temptation, because we have the proclivity. If you want to say because we have, I don't want to use the term, but because we have this propensity. What is the term? I've lost it now. I don't like to use it. Orientation. Because we have this, we have a right to give ourselves to it. That's not the way the scriptures speak about desires at all. Ever. Because we have a desire to something, for something, even a perpetual, even an ongoing one. And Christians can have that. Christians can struggle with sin for a long time. But if you give yourself over to that sin, if you say, no, I'm just going to do it i'm just gonna do what feels naturally i'm gonna do what feels good be aware that you're doing that in contradiction to the word of god which tells you to take up your cross daily to cut off arms to gouge out eyes spiritually speaking the cost of discipleship is that you lose your identity in yourself and christ is your lord He's the one you follow at the cost of every personal convenience because he's worth it. He demands it of his followers. And so the idea of I don't want these desires is not contrary to Scripture. That can be very, that can be very consistent with how our experience is, even as believers. And it's no defense for giving ourselves over to these temptations. It's no defense of the sin. The I did not choose this for my self-defense is no justification for homosexual desires, let alone the activity of. Next, the act of. The active. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts, you see that? With men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. As I said, I'm not going to exegete all of this, but I do want to bring this to your mind. The King James translates in verse 26, even their women, there's a certain sense of shock to this notion. We have an idea often nowadays that uh, the ancient civilizations, even further back than Rome and Greece, they were so advanced. And what has prohibited the human race in in the West now? What what has prohibited the human race from really uh, excelling has been the Christian ethic of morality, because the Greeks and the Romans they practiced. You know, preteracity, and I'll talk about that a little bit, homosexuality, and they didn't have any qualms. This just is not true. They did have qualms, but they did practice homosexuality. The reason why there is a shock with regards to women taking part in this practice is because even amongst the Greeks and the Romans, that was almost never the case. It was very rare that women would ever take part in this sin. And the reason for that was because women highly valued children. And you cannot have children if you're in a same-sex relationship naturally. There's all sorts of gross, perverted ways they do it now. But you cannot. And women desired children. They still do. Desired children naturally. And there were other factors with society because male Leadership was even very, very dominant in those Roman and Greek cultures, and even before them, in the East. And so you had women taking on very feminine roles. Now, with the advent of feminism, that shock is not there at all. Feminism has led to this sin among women being absolutely... As common as it is with men. But in these days, it was a shock. Even their women, they would give up their opportunity for motherhood. Perhaps the most innate desire for a woman. Burning in passion for one another. Paul's usage of the Greek words translated men and women here is done in a very crass way. He's not using high words that describe womanhood or manliness, just base terms that describe the mere difference between the sexes. And that is his point. He's speaking about a biological union which God has forbidden and which is unnatural, a sexual union. There are some that what That object and they say what unnatural means is heterosexual people taking part in these homosexual activities. There is nowhere in the past where that is ever the case. That is modern people putting on modern lenses and trying to interpret the the scripture based on those modern ideas. Very clearly the context of natural is created order. God, the creator, is rejected. Therefore, what is natural according to his his created purpose and order is upended, and that is demonstrated in this sexual activity between the sexes, male and male and female and female. According to Paul, homosexual desires and actions result from God's judgment of idolatry. This is why, as we're calling our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, whatever it is, whoever you know that is struggling with this sin or not struggling against it, but in this sin, their biggest problem, their first problem is that they do not give glory to God. Remember that. But the Bible is uniform with regards to what Paul says about the sin of the homosexual act The Bible is absolutely clear that homosexual desire and activity are sin. The theological standard that I've already preached on, Genesis 2.24, in the beginning God made them what? Male and female. And it's male and female that are united by God in marriage for life and the two become one flesh. Remember that. That is the theological basis for sexual righteousness. Outside of that, there is no basis for any sort of union whatsoever. One male, one female, bound in holy matrimony, the covenant of marriage for life. And Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That is the theological undergirding of sexual morality in scripture. Jesus tells us that, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, that is the way it is. But also there are narrative examples. We're not even going to go into them. We could go into Sodom and Gomorrah, and we could look at what God does to that place. And in Jude, he says he did that because of sexual immorality and unnatural sexual acts. But I want us to consider, and we could consider Exodus 20, do not commit adultery, which the Jews and we should rightly take as prohibiting all unrighteous sexual activity, not just adultery. But I want us to consider what we are forbidden to consider this morning by a culture. They'll scoff at you when you do this. Leviticus 18 and 20 also speak to this issue very clearly. This is the holiness code code in Israel. Leviticus 18 describes those sexual sins which were forbidden, and Leviticus 20 adds to them the condemnation within that civil arrangement of Israel to those sins. The law in 18.22 says, You shall not lie with male as with a woman. With a male as with a woman. It is an abomination and the punishment for this reiterates the sin. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, if you think that's extraordinary, remember that this is the same consequence for adultery. Adultery had the same con- consequence, death. It's not extraordinary. It's consistent with this civil code. This is the only two times... In Leviticus, where this term, toba, toeba, abomination, is used. This is the only two times describing this one sin, the sin of homosexuality. But the objection comes very quickly from this culture. Well, that's in the Old Testament, and that's the Old Testament law. After all, they were forbidden to wear clothes with interwoven fabrics, intermixed fabrics, linen and wool. They were forbidden to eat shellfish, etc. right? There are so many laws that we don't follow in Leviticus, and they'll say to us, you're just picking and choosing, right? There's a very famous TV show, The West Wing, that had this, uh, I mean, it was played all over. It went viral, as the kids say, right? They went, it went viral, and, and it had the president saying, which one do you want me to obey in all of these laws? You want me to obey that... That I'll kill my brother over here if he intermix fabrics. If, if, you know, and he goes on and he says, just to show that you don't obey all of these laws. So in other words, we're picking and choosing. We are being hypocrites, they'll say. And what do you answer to that? Are you being a hypocrite? God forbid we should be hypocrites when we speak about the word of God. Well, we don't disregard anything in Leviticus to start with. If your theology tells you to disregard everything in Leviticus, you're not hearing the word of God. Because the New Testament tells us that all scripture is given by God. And all scripture is profitable. And it also teaches us, the New Testament teaches us that we need to be discerning. What do we read in 1 Timothy 5? Some are teachers of the law, or they feign to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand it. They don't comprehend what they're teaching. Bodhi Bakum has a very good way of illustrating this. He says, when people come and tell you that you're picking and choosing from Leviticus, make sure you tell them that they're doing the same thing. He says, you're doing the same thing, But the difference is you don't know why you're doing the same thing. We know why we don't eat shellfish anymore. We know why the food laws don't concern us anymore. We know why we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. We are taught that in scripture. We are taught that we are not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore in the New Testament, right? These things are taught to us in the scriptures. But they don't know why they're picking and choosing. Chapter 19 of Leviticus uh, Leviticus 19 teaches us to love our neighbors. Do they think that we shouldn't? Because it's in Leviticus? It teaches us not to oppress the poor. Should we not? Should we be oppressing the poor because it's in Leviticus? You see, We pick and choose based on what we know from the scriptures. They pick and choose based on how to abide in the sin they want to continue in. The hypocrite is not us. The hypocrite is them. If they're going to stand on the word of God. But according to Vodibachim, when they enter into the discussion based on the word of God, we should be ecstatic and say, thank you, Lord. Because now we can have a Bible discussion with them. And we know that the reason why we are not held to the standards of Leviticus. In regards to the ceremonial law or the foods or the washing or the, or the cleansing laws. Is because Christ came to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so now we can witness of the gospel to these people. Who just want to argue this matter. It should always be about getting to the gospel. So we need discernment and we need to have rigor. We need to have the ability to be like the Bereans to search out what is applicable and what is not applicable. So is this applicable? These verses in Leviticus regarding homosexuality. I think there are many principles that would teach us they are, but there's two that I want to bring to your mind. Much of Leviticus is referenced in the New Testament, as is pertaining to righteousness, and what we as New Testament believers need to uphold and live according to. Jesus is the one who taught us the greatest commandment is to love our neighbor. That is explicitly found in Leviticus. Should we disregard it? No. Second, and this is the point I really want to drive home, when the Apostle Paul in the New Testament speaks of this sin of homosexuality, he uses a word that is first in history found in his writings alone. That is, no Greek writings before we find it in Paul is this term found. And this term is no doubt taken by Paul and made and coined by Paul As it relates to these two verses in Leviticus. Because the Septuagint. Everybody know what a Septuagint is? The Septuagint? The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And that existed long before Paul. Before Jesus' day. And Paul was a master of it. He knew it inside and out. But there's one word. There's two words in Septuagint. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And this is the word. The two words. Arsenos. In Leviticus 18.22, arsenos, which means man, the second word is koiton, lay, or bed. Chapter 20, verse 13, arsenos, koiton, those are two different words, men, bed. Now Paul, in the New Testament, in two places, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 1 Timothy 10, combines that, those two Greek words into one Greek word. It's the only place we see it in all Greek literature. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Malakoi, arsenikoitai is the Greek word. One Greek word that comes directly from those Leviticus passages. Paul is teaching us this truth. New Testament believers, this truth based on Leviticus 18 and 20, what it says there. He's taking those words and he's saying, this is what it regards. 1 Timothy 1:10. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, arsenic coitai. Now, there's been numerous attempts to impose other than biblical interpretations on this clear word from Paul. Some say that Paul is forbidding what was known as pederasty, the the practice that adult males in the Greek and the Roman world would take young boys, pubescent boys, and, and they would take them, and that would be sort of a rite of passage into adulthood. But as soon as that child became a man grow a beard they were no longer useful for that and they were to be set set aside it was a horrible evil practice but some say that's what Paul is forbidding here others are saying well Paul is forbidding cultic prostitution of men and that may be part of it but it's not explicitly what he's regarding here the the word literally means men betters Those who go to bed with men, men who go to bed with men, that's what it means. And it's taken right from Leviticus and it regards homosexual activity very clearly. Now, there's another Greek word that I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, malakoi. Now, that means soft ones. And this is where many people think, in the the King James, it's translated effeminate. Those who are effeminate. And some people think, well, this is just what we just said, preterasty. Right? Some people say this is just somebody to use. And so what is said, what the argument is, Paul is not forbidding homosexual practice outright. He's saying there shouldn't be any exploitative homosexual practices. But this term very clearly means the writings of Philo, who was just he was a Jew he uses this term as one who was the passive partner in a homosexual act. Every time he uses it. It's very clear in this context with men, betters, and this word that Paul is forbidding both the active and passive form of this sexual sin. As clear as he could possibly say it, that's what he's forbidding. The scriptures are absolutely clear. In some ways, I hate to even have to spell it out for you this morning. They're absolutely clear in the theology of scripture, from the creative purpose in scripture to what scripture says about marriage. Some people will say, oh, you have six texts in the Bible that talks about this. That's all you have in all the Bible. Every text on marriage contradicts this. Everyone. Do you realize... We're going to get into some of the ways that this sin infiltrates and subverts God's created good purpose in society. We are told so many lies about homosexuality that it's agreeable to love. Maybe that's the most powerful lie of all. Because we know that the greatest commandment is to love, your, love God first and love our neighbor as ourselves. We hear people saying, I just want to live with someone I love. Isn't that what is best? But the Bible says, love, true love, does not rejoice in iniquity. You cannot start redefining what is righteous and then say, love is doing what is unrighteous. In other words, you can't say that what God defines as unrighteous is good and then define love as doing what God defines as unrighteous, but we define as good. You see, it really comes down in our day and age to whether you will believe God or man on these issues. What we are told today is that, and listen to this authority, you must tolerate, no, it's not tolerate, that's what it used to be, You must accept me. No, it's not accept. You must celebrate me. And you must never contradict me. Who has the right to say that? Who has the right to say that to you and to me? God. We have made ourselves God in regards to these matters. And if I am compelled to obey you and how I must view you by you, by your authority, you become my God, the God of my conscience, the God of moral righteousness for me. And we have removed God from his throne and we have decided that we ourselves are God. And he has given us over to this sexual deviancy. Sin is never agreeable to love. And it is hatred to oppose righteousness. The offense of this sin, in the first place, is that it offends our Creator in the way that he's created us to live. Manhood and womanhood are distorted with this sin. In it, there's no possibility for procreation. This sin promotes the lack of either father or mother in a home the more that we validate it. You recognize that? The more that we seek to validate it, the more we splinter the home, man and woman. Now we actually... Abhor mothers in a home or fathers in a home when we say two mothers can raise a child and it's just as if it were a, a, a nuclear family, as we call it. Or two men can raise children together without a woman. We actually validate this in our laws today. This sin carries intrinsic shame with it, the scriptures say, which is evident And I'll tell you why it's evident in our culture. It's evident in two ways. Either they keep the sin secret, shameful, or they demand everybody receive them and accept them while they do it. You say, well, that's strange. You see, one of the things that tells is a tell sign if you're doing evil is that you have to have people affirm you when you're doing it. When you're doing it. You have to have months that affirm you. You have to have stores. You have to have sporting teams wear your colors. You have to be affirmed, absolutely. You can't have anybody resist. This regards humanity. Today, with the advent of monkeypox, which is, right now anyway, primarily a sexually transmitted disease. I don't know if it will always stay like that, but right now it is. And 99 or 98% of it is amongst homosexual men. And if you read anything, you cannot even suggest publicly that those men restrain themselves constrain their urges and this thing would go away and that's not new that's every std you can't even suggest abstinence in our day because this is an idol that must be worshiped unchecked there may be no end to the sexual and actual distortion of humankind as a result of this sin, what are we seeing today in the sister sin of transgenderism? We are seeing mutilation in children. We are seeing adults promote mutilation, bodily mutilation, hormonal mutilation in children. And they're using the same parameters as homosexuality uses to defend its own righteousness. The same mechanism, the same argument. When we allow these sins to go unchecked, there are no breaks, and the end is death. Sin is pleasurable for a season. The Bible says it. You know, the Canaanites took part in these sins. God gave them 400 years until their iniquity was complete, before he judged them outrightly. I don't know if he'll give us 400 years. This sin, as I've said already, is already a judgment upon ourselves. And yet we don't come to this world as Jesus didn't come to this world to condemn the world. This is what I want us to hear in in light of all that was said with regards to the biblical view of this sin. Jesus said, I did not come to the world to condemn the world. Now, what the world wants us to apply in that is to say, no, you're fine in doing what you're doing. That is not how Jesus applied that. I did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. What condemns the world? The law. Everything that I've said about this sin in accordance with God's word that condemns it, using it lawfully, those sinners who continue in it are condemned by the law. But we have news for them, don't we? We have news, and it's good news for them. It's the same news that gives us hope. Because all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, the list of vices in 1 Corinthians 6-9 are more than sexual sins. Greedy, envious, you could, you could just go on and on with these sins. And then it says this, such were some of you. And there's two things I want to say about that. This is not an immutable issue. If you're struggling with these temptations, if you know somebody who's struggling with them, encourage them. This is not who they have to be. By God's grace. You know, I preached an Easter sermon, I don't know how many years ago, nine years ago, at the pier. And it wasn't on the topic of homosexuality. I read this text. I only read it. But I read it with the hope that the resurrected Christ gives us. You see, we died in Christ's death and we're alive in his life by faith. And that life means that we are not in bondage to sin any longer, but we are slaves of Christ. And that's a process that keeps going, and it's a power that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. It may not be immediately that we're free from all of our temptations, but we are going to be one day absolutely through Christ's power and through his life. All I did was preach on that truth, and I read that text, and I got a call from a woman who was absolutely irate how could you read that text in public? And I told her the reason I read that text in public is for hope for sinners. We need to be prayerful about people that struggle with homosexual temptation and sin. We need to be prayerful, we need to be outspoken that there is a savior there is repentance there is newness of life you don't have to continue in the sin and the second thing i want to say is that text means that there is no adjective before christian except for happy <laughs> or joyful but when we say gay christian and we mean by that that i'm gay oriented christian that is an oxymoron and there are Sincere believers, I think, that are using that improperly as a means of evangelizing the world. I am not a covetous Christian. I don't identify by my sin. I'm not a greedy Christian. I may struggle with greed, but I don't identify with my sin. Christians, the definition of our faith is that we boast only in the Lord. Not in who we used to be. Paul says, even my righteousness are rubbish. I count it as doo-doo in the vernacular. That's what he was using. The vernacular. How much more our sin. I'm not going to identify myself according to my sin. I was saved from my sin. I am being saved from my sin. Jesus came to release us, to free us from the power of the evil one, from Satan, 1 John chapter 3. Do not be identified by your sin. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so may they be by the grace of God. You see, we have to uphold the truth of God's law properly so that they'll know that they can be saved from the condemnation of their being lawbreakers through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to save sinners. No sinner is outside of his ability to save unless they reject him.